Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Uh, What an awesome morning together so far. I'm going to do what so many of my true friends, at least a half a dozen of you, said to me this morning. I'm going to try not to mess it up. Thank you guys for the encouragement, as always. Um, Y'all can go ahead and start turning to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1. Um, I I do want to say this before we get started, and I I hate saying this now because I'm afraid you're going to forget it by the end. So if you need to jot this down to remind yourself. Um, I was reminded this week... uh, through 15 or so hours of sermon prep, how difficult it is to find the time and the energy needed to put together a sermon worthy of being preached, which hopefully this will be. Um, So every time you guys get a chance, encourage our elders, uh, because none of these guys are full-time. They all have plenty of other things and and work and family and all that going on. So it is a it is a big burden that they take on uh, joyfully to minister to us. So please, every time you get a chance, every time you think of it, don't keep that in your head. Shoot them a text, shoot them an email, do something, let them know, because uh, I know that's worth a lot to them. So let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Does it sound like I'm yelling or is my volume okay? Are we good? Okay. All right. Uh, we're going to read the first 12 verses. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. To those who are elect of the dispersion... It, In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, You love him, though you do not see him now. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, But you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So we are continuing the Advent season this morning uh, by looking at um, hope. Uh, The the, the four main topics or main themes of Advent, Advent are joy, hope, peace and love. So this morning we're going to look at hope and we're going to look at true hope. There are uh, synonymous words that we use interchangeably with that word hope that are not the same thing as hope. And so we want to know what our authority scripture says about hope 
and what God tell us, tells us we are to uh, hope in and to put our hope in. Um, for my sermon illustration, I'm going to try to kill two birds with one stone, uh, which is to, one, give a sermon illustration, and two, to hopefully publicly embarrass my wife just a little bit. So she has not seen my sermon notes, I don't think, for this time around. So I I love stories. I love storytelling. And one story that people always want to know or that we always ask people uh, who are married is, how did you meet or how did you end up together? And so um, I'm going to very carefully tell this story. Uh, (laughs) So Stephanie and I met uh, in 2000, the year 2000, at Young Harris College. We were both uh, about to be freshmen. We met the night before our uh, first day of classes with in a, in a dorm room with probably eight or ten other people. And uh, I, I, I immediately thought Stephanie was pretty and nice and really fun. I mean, y'all who know Stephanie know she's just, she's always vibrant, she's always fun, she's always having a good time. And, um, but, but I heard pretty quickly that she had been dating a guy for like three years, which when you're 18 sounds the ex- exactly the same as she's married. You know what I mean? <laughs> three years is forever. So I immediately just put her, you know, off limits. Okay, um, she can be a friend. So um, side note, and this is bizarre. Stephanie's life is very bizarre. Weird stuff happens all the time. I actually stay in touch with the guy she, she dated for all those years. And had Stephanie married him, she would be sitting in a church this morning in Washington, D.C., listening to her husband preach a, an Advent sermon on hope. I'm not kidding. That is Stephanie's life. Um, So this is where I have to really be careful. Over the course of our uh, two years at Young Harris College, Stephanie was there to watch me make, and my mom is in the room too, and so are my daughters. This is is bad. She was there to watch me make uh, quite a few, let us say, questionable dating choices. Uh, Choices that I wouldn't have ever considered introducing to my mother. And... um, Man, this is painful. <laughs> and choices that my two daughters who are listening right now, uh, if they ever ask me about, I will not answer them until I'm on my deathbed, and I will just mumble then. So, uh, And might I add with much sarcasm that I am so thankful that Stephanie was there watching all that so that my uh, foolishness could be brought to light low these many years later, anytime there's a chance. Uh, so near the end of our sophomore year there, uh, Stephanie and some other friends and I were hanging out in, in my dorm suite. So we had kind of a central common room when you first walked in, and then uh, the bathroom was after that. Like sinks were kind of out in the middle, and then you had, you know, toilets and showers on either side behind closed doors, and the three bedrooms, six guys living there. Um, and I guess we must have been talking about music because Stephanie and I ended up plopping down at my desk in my room and doing what was so fashionable in those years, which was illegally downloading music off of Napster. Uh, but there was a problem. Uh, one of my college roommates um, had a, a foot odor problem. <laughs> and some stinky shoes nearby were just making the whole scene kind of difficult. So Stephanie uh, reached up to the shelf on my desk and grabbed, I kid you not, Michael Jordan Cologne, if you even knew that existed. <laughs> and she, she went to spray it on my shoulder right here so that that scent would be right next to her face and cover up, hopefully, the foot smell. And she didn't know that the nozzle was pointing somewhere different, and the Michael Jordan cologne went right into my mouth. (laughs) And I will say that unlike its namesake, Michael Jordan's cologne's taste was not the greatest of all time. 
It was more of a LeBron level taste, which is to say, not that great. That was for you, Jeff. <laughs> so I hopped up and ran out of the room and into the, and into the central dorm area to the sink. And I'm, I grabbed my toothbrush. I'm scrubbing. Uh, one part I left out, and this is kind of important. We had a, just so stupid, we had a chunk of a speed bump that we had taken from the, one of the school parking lots. And we had it in the doorway of our dorm, as we said, to slow down the ladies. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we meant it like we're slowing so many from trying to come in. But really, it was probably like we were hoping they would trip up, like the rare one that came in, trying to slow them down from leaving. So I'm there scrubbing my tongue, trying to get this cologne taste out of my mouth. Stephanie, who's still to this day, her favorite thing on this planet is seeing me suffer. It is hilarious to her, even when I'm really hurt, like go to the hospital hurt. And... Uh, So she's standing on top of this speed bump, which I think was the Lord's providence, and laughing at me in my face. And something really weird happened in that moment. Um, Again, I had really, genuinely, I had viewed Stephanie as a friend, even though I thought all those things about her. She's off limits. She's a friend. Uh, One thing I'd noticed about Stephanie over the course of our time in college together was different guys would approach her that she didn't know in in social situations. They would try to talk to her. And she hated that. She thought that if some guy didn't even know her and was basing everything just off like appearances and I'm going to come up and try to ask you out, she thought that was just total foolishness and would have none of it and would be like shut off to that guy for forever. And that's what, that was the way I handled girls growing up. I, if I thought one was interesting, I would just go ask one out. I was tall and confident. I thought that's all women cared about. So I would just go ask. So God kind of, I think now, protected her and me from me, and, and had us in that time of being friends. But then when I look up from scrubbing my tongue at this girl laughing at me, my friend Stephanie, it was like my eyes saw her for the first time, and I said in my head what she would say years later as a 20-foot wave dashed us against volcanic rock on our honeymoon in Hawaii, which was, whoa. And it was like my eyes were open for the first time to her. And all of a sudden, I mean, my insides melted. I was in trouble. And I thought, because I knew Stephanie was weirded out by guys who pursued her like that, I made the decision right then and there, I'm not telling anybody. I'm keeping this to myself forever. Shiloh, I don't know what you're talking to your mama about, but (laughs) oh my gosh. Um. So for about a year, I sat on this. We left Young Harris. She went to University of Georgia. I went to North Georgia in Dahlonega. And uh, we stayed in touch over the phone after I'd, you know, we had moved apart. And we were on the phone one night. I don't know how it came up, but I finally just kind of came out with it. Listen, I've had feelings for you like uh, more than a friend. And her response was, oh, Dave. I'm sure this is just one of your phases. (laughs) So I was dazed by that jab, but I scrambled like a veteran salesman. Well, I responded, this phase has been pretty solid for over a year now. You remember my roommate's feet and you sprayed the cologne thing and and then the speed bump and the the illegal music downloads? It started then, in that setting. Remember that night? Like a year ago. It's been real strong since then, real strong. Another big piece of data for her to process. Over a year, surely my undying commitment for over a year, which again, when you're 19, well, when you're 40, a year is like five weeks is what it feels like. 
but when you're 19, a year is 5% of your life. So I thought it was a big deal. Uh, so how would she handle this? So if the, cough, if the coffin had been closing with her phases comment, some very large nails were driven into place when she said, but Dave, you're like my brother. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was a good reaction. <laughs> That's beyond the friend zone. I'm in the brother zone. That's going to be tough to overcome. So here's the deal, though. Now, now we know how the story ends, okay? So hope and, and biblical hope in particular, which is true hope, has a, a certainty with it, not a little bit of certainty or, or not like where I was with some wishful thinking because now, in hindsight, that seems like a hope that had certainty with it because Stephanie's wearing a ring that I gave her willfully and there, she has two daughters who look a little bit like me. And so we know how things ended up. So you could make the argument that that was real hope. But at the time, let's not kid ourselves. This was not real hope. The odds were long. It was wishful thinking at best. And if you want to shine it up some, you could use the word optimism. But that's not the hope that we find in Scripture. So some quick notes on biblical hope. First, biblical hope is not the same thing as optimism or wishful thinking. It is based on a person. Every time you see it in scripture, when the word hope is used, it is based on a person. It is not based on something that has long odds or a bunch of uncertainty around it or something that you're betting on or really just wishing would happen. And that makes it different from, from optimism. Um, biblical hope should not be based on or affected by circumstances, any circumstances. What biblical hope is comes to us in three words in scripture. There's two Hebrew words found in the Old Testament and one in Greek in the New Testament. And so I'm going to give you these real quick. Uh, say this one with me. This is one of the Old Testament ones in Hebrew. Yachal. Yeah, how many people spit when they said that? So that is like uh, Noah waiting, hoping for the floodwaters to recede. That's the word that's used there. And then kava, which is the feeling of tension or expectation while you wait for release. So the Hebrew word for cord or string is kav, Q-A-V. And this is like a cord that is tightened. So think about, you know, the cord on a musical instrument or uh, if you want to think of a, a bow string. Um, drawing that bow back, the tension that's there, waiting for it to release, hoping that your target will be hit. The New Testament word that's used is el pis. Uh, actually, sorry, I'm skipping ahead. Those two words appear over 40 times just in Psalms alone, kava and yachal. Yachal, excuse me. Um, and in each and every instance, it's the people or the psalmist waiting on God, waiting on God. Not waiting on a certain circumstance, but waiting on God himself. Uh, a classic example would be Psalm 39.7, which says, oh, now, And now, O Lord, what else can I hope for? You are my hope. Well, the Hebrew is, and now, O oh Lord, what else can I kava for? What else can I wait for with such tension and anticipation? You are my yachal, my, my place of hope. You are my hope, my person of hope. The New Testament word that's used, the Greek, is the Greek that we find here in 1 Peter in, in a living hope, which is elpis, E-L-P-I-S, which is based on a person and, and literally a, a living hope. The hope this hope is the source of joy and peace. 
If you don't have hope, you will not have joy. If you don't have hope, you will not have peace. In contrast, if you have hope, you can have joy in any circumstance. And if you have hope, you can have peace in any circumstance. Um, I, I, just throughout this week, preparing for this sermon, I kept visualizing hope as a, as a boat. Um, I don't know if that helps you or not, but it doesn't matter what's going on. This is an unsinkable boat that is taking us into the future. Hope is essentially like a faith in fast forward, in the future. It's there. It's not for today. Faith is for today. Hope is for tomorrow. Um, Don't turn there there now, but I do want you to read this. I didn't feel like we had time to adequately cover it, but read this today. Uh, Write these these verses down. Luke chapter 1, verses 68 to 71, because this is, I think, a great look at how hope should be thought of. Um, And all I'm going to tell you about it is that the hope described in those verses is so certain that even though it's being talked about as a future thing, which hope is, the words that are used to describe it are, are a past tense, as if it has already happened. It's so certain that you can talk about it in past tense. Uh, John Piper said about that, for the mind of faith, a promised act of God is as good as done. And we can see that in our own lives. We can see it through the history of God's people and all throughout scripture. So uh, let's get back into First Peter and break down these 12 verses. Uh, As we approach this text, I I, I do want us to look at a few things um, just to help us understand things. Um, The New Testament is is a lot simpler, I think, for us to read than the Old Testament because of certain things. It can still be a little bit complicated. We have to always approach Scripture carefully. Um, One of the things we should note, and hear me out before I, you know, know, if you you start to pass judgment on what I'm about to say like it's heresy, hear me out to the end here. we have to be careful how we read a letter like 1 Peter because you and I are not the specific elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And it's easy for us to read into scripture and say, this is me, this is me, this is me. So hold that for just a second because this is a real letter from a real person to real people living in a real place and time, okay? However, this letter is still to us, and I want to tell you why it's still to us. Um, If you've ever struggled with how to intake the Old Testament, I can remember always wondering growing up, like, how does, I don't, why do do we eat pork? Sitting there eating ribs after church and being like, "Why, why are we eating this? I thought we couldn't eat this stuff, you know, and the Old Testament says this. Why do we hold the Ten Commandments way up here and these other commandments? We're like, ah, we don't, it's not a big deal. So, To us and for us. That's the easiest way that I remember this stuff. So if you ever struggle with reading the Old Testament, just remember to us and for us. So the Old Testament was written to ancient Israelites. So raise your hand here this morning if you are an ancient Israelite. Thankfully, there's no comedians in here. Okay, good. So the Old Testament is not written to you specifically or to me specifically. However, That doesn't mean that we throw the Old Testament out like a fool. We acknowledge it as written for us, even if it wasn't written to us. And it has many things, everything in there is for us to help us understand who God is, his character, what he wants from his people, how he wants us to live our lives and to be different and set apart, even if every little thing we do isn't what a New Testament Christian does. Does that make sense? I hope it does. First Peter 
and the rest of the New Testament is to us, even though we're not that specific person that Peter's talking about and that original audience. We have a lot in common with these people. We are both living in a post-resurrection, post-ascension time. Jesus has come. He died on the cross. He raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. They experienced the aftermath of that. They did not see it. I don't know if any of Peter's original audience would have actually seen the risen Jesus with their own eyes. This was written about 30 years after Jesus Jesus ascended into heaven. And so we share that in common. Uh, Likewise, we have been left with the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. That's something that the Old Testament people didn't get, unfortunately, that we get. So we share that with this original audience. Um, We are living in a society very much like, in a lot of ways, ancient Rome an ancient Roman society. In fact, if you, if you fast forward to 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter actually refers to Rome as Babylon. And I still can't remember the book we read. What was the book we read earlier this year about digital Babylon and all that stuff, how our society is trying to disciple us constantly with everything that they do? Faith for exiles. Faith for exiles. There we go. Okay, thank you. Um, that was similar to the society that these original hearers were living in. Their society did not want them to be Christians. Um, Their society thought Christianity was stupid. Um, We and them live in a society where truth is is hated or laughed at. Uh, Lies about Christianity are spoken as their objective truth. Uh, Back in those days, Nero, the emperor, and his people, they spread all these thoughts that got into everyone's mind that Christians were incestuous, because they said things like, I love you, brother, and I love you, sister. They were actually incestuous, that they were cannibals because they talked about drinking the blood and eating the body of Jesus. And he made them out to be total, like, disgusting freaks of society. And that became popular lingo during those days. And so that's what these people were living with. Um, And even though we're not at the level of persecution that these believers were at, I mean, Nero was hanging up believers at that time uh, in cages and lighting them on fire to light his gardens at night. Nero was feeding Christians to wild animals for public entertainment. So we're not there yet, thankfully. Um, But I think a lot of y'all might think like I do, which is we so quickly have turned into a pagan nation I don't know that that's that far off. I mean, uh, that might sound crazy to say or to think about, but things have gone so fast the last decade towards paganism that we need to identify with these believers and we need to to gather wisdom uh, as to how they live their lives for our life in case we do get there. We need to remember through that that as great as America is, as great as it is to live in the South, uh, I mean, gosh, don't you just love our town and our church and our, the restaurants and hanging out with friends and, you know, I'm not a Georgia football fan, but I know it's a good time to be a Georgia football fan. There's all those great little things, but we're not citizens here. This is not our place of citizenship. We are foreigners. We are in exile in a very real way, and we should be anticipating the kingdom to come more than anything. So what is Peter, Peter's message to them and to us living within that context? Let's look at verse 1. So he introduces himself, and then he says, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may 
grace and peace be multiplied for you. Uh, some of these people were actually scattered. Uh, they, they did have to say, for example, leave Jerusalem because they became Christians. Maybe they were Gentiles. Maybe they were Jews. They became Christians, and the persecution on their lives was such that they had to leave to find work. It could have been as simple as that, but something so devastating where they couldn't find paid work, they were put to such shame locally where they lived that they actually had to leave. Um, really, more likely what Peter is really saying is that, that thing about citizenship. Again, he's speaking to all of them, even if they haven't been exiled or pushed out of their hometown to say, you're citizens of Jesus' kingdom first and foremost. Um, the foreknowledge mentioned here uh, in verse 2, it, it could be a little controversial, uh, but to, to believers, it should be a hope-giving word, and here's why. We are God's people, his elect, and not just because God foreknew that we would belong to him, but because he set his covenantal affection on us in advance. That's big. For God, who does not change, there was never any mystery or curiosity as to who we would be, that we would be his. And though we may waver in doubt, and though our affections for him may wax and wane, and maybe even we doubt his existence at times, for him there was never a shred of doubt about us, which is crazy when you consider the object of affection from us to him and from him to us. It should be the other way around, right? He should be the, ones doubting, he should be the one doubting us. And we should be the ones sure about him. Um, verses 3 through 12, is, it's kind of like a big fun run-on sentence, which I think would have made this fisherman, Peter, look a little bit smart to his audience. Um, so let's take a look at it. So verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This living hope is a two-sided coin. Um, it's a living hope because Jesus defeated death and raised from the dead. He is our living hope. He is alive. Uh, and yet, also, we are to reflect that. And we are to be a living hope um, to the people around us. And I've fought in preparation of this. I could have really gone down a rabbit trail, so I'll say this very briefly. Um, and I am guilty of this often. So I'm preaching to myself here, maybe more than I'm preaching to anybody else in this room that I know. It is so easy to get dragged down by everything we see in this world. By all the foolishness, by all the dark, dirty everything that we see all the time. And it's appropriate to be saddened by that. It's not appropriate for us to be dragged down by it. It's not, because that's not what our hope is. And our hope is, our hope is not in everything being right in this world right now, because our hope is that in the life to come, everything will be made right. And there will be, no, there will be nothing to be sad about. I love this language here, verse 4, that not only did he give us life, he gave us an, he's giving us an inheritance. He has given us an inheritance. And we'll explain more, that more in just a minute. But it is, it is an inheritance. Again, think certainty here. Certainty, certainty, certainty. It's imperishable. 
It's undefiled. It's unfading. We might think of this as an inheritance that is one that we will cash in upon our death. But receiving eternal life happens in this life, doesn't it? When we receive it, it happens here. And so the inheritance starts then. We receive eternal life upon faith in Christ, and with that we receive these very things that we are remembering and celebrating in the Advent season. Our inheritance is hope, joy, love, and peace right now. Second, one day we will get out of this boat of hope that carries us into the future into a certain destination, and we will leave that boat behind. And we're going to get touch back on that in just a minute. Um, and we will receive that inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Think about, you know, whatever you're hoping for for Christmas. Like, my mom gave me this early Christmas present. I wanted a sports jacket so I could look a little more adult-like because a lot of times I just wear a flannel. Uh, and, you know, this thing, I, I pulled it out of the bag last night, and it's, it's nice. It's got, you know, fresh colors. It smelled good when you pull it out of the bag. You know, but in a couple of years, even this nice sports jacket, it's going to be a little bit faded. It's going to be, you know, if, if you're hoping for that new pair of shoes for Christmas or that new pair of pants or that new coat, in a few years or maybe less, you're going to be needing a replacement for that. It's going to wear out. Our inheritance is not that. So whatever your favorite Christmas gift of all time was, uh, it's probably worn out by now, as excited as you were about it. And it's great to think that we will not have any of that going on in the life to come. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be, to be revealed in the last time. There's your, there's your certainty, brothers and sisters. It's God himself is guarding your salvation. It is sure and it is certain. Your hope is real. If you feel hopeless, that's a lie. It's not true. That's your feelings lying to you. That's your circumstances dictating what you think is true in your head. The God of the universe and scripture say to you that God is guarding it. Good luck getting that away. Verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's reminding his readers that their, their suffering is not a hopeless, meaningless suffering, uh, which is, can't be overstated. Uh, in contrast, the value of their faith and their hope is such that it makes gold, which is the most precious thing on the planet at that time, it makes it seem like it's, it's not really that important. Even gold that's been melted down and refined by fire and gotten all the impurities out. It's pure gold. Not a big deal compared to this faith and this hope. And this, this harkens back some, I think, to that first commandment of um, not putting any gods before God. What, what is our treasure? Uh, what is most valuable to us? What is our hope in? Verses 8 and 9 Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
Another thing that we share in common with these, these original hearers, again, we have not, with our own eyes, seen the risen Christ. Um, I do think it's very important that we consider the words of Peter. If you're here this morning and you don't believe this stuff, um, Peter, a year or two from writing this letter, would be hung upside down on a cross and executed by Nero. He would die. Why? Because he preached that this man Jesus raised from the dead. Now, I want to tell you what human beings do not do. Human beings do not go to execution standing on a lie without recanting. They don't do that. That's, nobody does that. Much less every single disciple except for John. And you can throw Paul in that mix too. And you can throw a lot of Christians since that time. But I, I want to look especially at Peter and those guys who walked daily with him, knew him, knew what his life was like, knew he was sinless, saw him die, and then saw his body walking around three days later, talking and ministering alive. They died for that. They didn't die that for, for that based off the testimony of other people. Um, I will consider the words in the life of a man who dies saying, no, this is true. And I think you should too. Verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about, it, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Uh, again, the, whole, the, the Old Testament prophets prophesied with the Holy Spirit. Think about the Holy Spirit coming upon them to give them the ability to prophesy and to give God's people what they needed. And contrast that with the blessing that God has given us through Christ, which is allowing the Holy Spirit to set up in us, to be in us, guiding us in our daily life, comforting us through those tough circumstances. Um, and it's amazing to think that God had us in mind when he pressed these ancient prophets into their work, uh, when they wrote about the Messiah to come. So many times in Isaiah, for example, And think about the prophecies there. Think about, specifically Isaiah, think about those prophecies. Uh, who would want to fulfill those? Again, people don't do that. You don't want to be the suffering servant. You don't want to heal other people or help, help other people by being whipped. Your stripes and your wounds. You don't want your, your clothing gambled for. Who wants to fulfill that? A, a psychopath or a savior. Those, those are the only options. And I want you to reflect and be grateful on what Peter says here about preaching. This good news has been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. Think about, if you've never done this before, reflect on all the dominoes that had to fall in order for God to get the good news to your ears. Or to the ears of maybe your, your great-grandparents or whoever it was that started that line of, of an inheritance, a spiritual inheritance in your family. Um, think about how the gospel had to spread the deliberate actions of believer after believer, of generation after believer, uh, uh, generation after generation to get to your ears. And I do want to point this out. Uh, Melissa Benny said last night, I, I can't wait to hear you preach about something not missions. I'm sorry, Benny, here we go. 
That is not something that every person on the planet can say, that the good news has hit their ears. Right now, right now, in 2022, there are over a billion people who forget about not knowing about the Advent season or about celebrating Christmas or about Bethlehem or any of that stuff. They've never heard the name of Jesus. Over a billion people. Never. They have no knowledge at all. Zero. Total ignorance. The gospel has hit your ears. Be grateful for that. Uh, If it bothers you, even subconsciously, that that God owes that to all men, that the gospel should hit their ears, and if it doesn't, that's unfair, and shame on you, God. Let's look at two last verses, and I would preach, this is my favorite scripture in the whole Bible, I would preach on these every time if I had the chance. Isaiah chapter 6, turn there with me briefly, we're going to look at two verses as we close. Isaiah chapter 6, right after Proverbs, Song of Solomon. So this is Isaiah getting to be in the throne room. You guys are familiar with this scripture, I'm sure. But I want to focus on these characters. Verse 2, above God stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Have you ever really read that scripture and thought about it? Think about these creatures, these terrifying giant angels, forever flying and shouting praises of God. These angels have never once sinned, ever. Not even close. They have spent their entire existence from eternity past since God created them shouting praises to God. They have forever been in worship of God, shouting about his holiness and personally experiencing his holiness, even though they're not looking at him, by just being in his presence. And yet in spite of these facts, in spite of their resume, they covered their feet with one pair of wings because compared to this God, Their feet are unclean somehow. And yet in spite of these facts, they cover their faces because their eyes, which have never seen anything sinful, can't behold his glory. They're not ready for it. You and I don't have this resume. The person who has never heard the gospel, who's never hit their ears, his or her ears, they don't have this resume. Don't think of them as some people deserving of any sort of hope. Because when you look at this God, we should have no hope. None. But we do. Not because of who we are, because of who he he is. This is the same one who left this throne room. Think about this. Who would do this? 
He left behind the adoring shouts of angels to receive the jeers and hatred of a crowd. That same God would hear the man who wrote this letter deny him three times off in the distance. That's what he left this amazing throne room in Isaiah 6 for. Who would do that? You would not do that. I would not do that. No way. I don't like leaving my house, which is pretty comfortable and nice. There is no way I would leave that throne room. That's how good God is. Brothers and sisters, hope and wishful thinking or optimism are two vastly different things. Yeah, be optimistic about life and circumstances and all that, but your hope only belongs to one source. Don't put it elsewhere. He is worthy of your sure and certain hope. Consider this. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I really reflected on this a lot this week, and it was a weird thought. George and I were talking about it at the Christmas dinner the other night. One day, hope and faith will cease to exist. Isn't that a weird thought? These beautiful things, hope and faith. Faith which is required by God for our salvation, one day will not exist. It will be replaced. Hope for the future. Hope, such a beautiful thing that's so necessary to our existence today, will not exist one day. As beautiful as the thing that is. Because it will have no use. Because it will be replaced by being at the place where God has created for us. And by seeing him with our own eyes. Hope and faith will have no use. Isn't that amazing? A changing world gives us reason to fear. The unchanging gospel gives us reason to hope. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for you and uh, for your word. God, please help us to be faithful to find ourselves in your word and at your feet every day. God, help us to reflect on you and what you've done during this season, and that it may carry us through the year. And God, help us to be that living hope to those around us, that they may be drawn to you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.